in November of this year, the United States of America will go to the polls again and we'll see whether or not uh, Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, will be successful in winning a second term. I like uh, listening to NPR. I must confess, National Public Radio, an American not-for-profit radio station, and in particular, I like uh, listening to an NPR radio program, program called All Things Considered. In the views that I'm about to express, well, basically, uh, All Things Considered is my source. And so I understand from, I guess, listening to that radio program, uh, that President Trump will have two major handicaps to overcome if he is to be successful in the upcoming election. Firstly, Donald Trump likes playing the underdog. He likes playing that outsider, the non-establishment, say it like it is, hero with the whole wide world against him. But it's a little hard to play the underdog, the victim, when you're the most powerful man in the world. Last time, by playing the long-shot outsider to Hillary Clinton as establishment insider shoo-in, he provoked a strong sympathy vote. But he can't play that card again. Second, Donald will almost certainly be judged by the American public on essentially one issue, and that is his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the problem is, a lot of people don't think he's done a very good job at all. And they're saying so loudly. And it does seem... A lot like Donald actually experiences correction as rejection and he comes out all guns blazing uh, where perhaps he could just listen. Well, uh, you might be wondering how any of this connects to our text today. The answer is perhaps not too hard to guess. We're being asked to judge David on his handling of an epidemic, a health crisis, and we're being asked to re-elect him, speaking very figuratively, for a second term. You see, we are working through the life of David, King David, second king of Israel, and we're working through the closing chapters of his life from the books of Second Samuel and next week, First Kings. And we're in a section of material wherein we're being prompted to consider David's legacy. Last week we saw that David's legacy was an extraordinary one. Prophet, priest and king. One who ruled in the fear of God. One who made himself gloriously redundant. One who infected his men with contagious courage. One who taught his men to stand, to stand their ground. This week's passage contains many shocks for us. As we, we read it, questions might arise for us that include ones such as these. What does it mean that the Lord incited David against Israel? Does God tempt people into sin? It seems as though this is what God is doing now with David 
And if so, how could that person be guilty, seeing as they had no choice? Also, what was just so bad about taking a census? What's wrong with doing that? Australia does that every five years, takes a census. Are we guilty of some shockingly sinful thing or something very foolish? Next, what does this text tell us about the justice of God? Even David himself asks this question. Verse 17, I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? God's anger is so great that on the one hand that 70,000 people die in a plague for which God takes full and direct responsibility. And yet on the other hand, God's anger seems to be so fickle, at least apparently so, that it is finally satisfied by mere tokens. A few sheep and cattle burnt up as burnt and fellowship offerings. What does this mean? And in response to our ongoing health crisis, um, and their health crisis, which was very clearly a highly contagious, extremely lethal illness, well, in response to that health crisis, David kills a bunch of cows and sheep and the disease goes away. Should we be doing this instead of social distancing and sanitizing our hands? Or, more seriously, what aspects of this worldview do we hold to as Christians and which do we reject as being pre-modern and obsolete? Well, if you're asking questions like these, they are excellent questions to ask. I hope to answer some of them, at least offer initial answers in this sermon. But I will defer uh, the deeper theological discussion of how this text relates to COVID-19 in a second sermon that I'll post uh, on this site sometime soon. But my first task this morning is to demonstrate that this text has good things to say about David. And that secondarily, these same things point us to Jesus. And that thirdly, these things likewise teach us how to live life and do leadership well. So what are these good things that the text says about David? Well, uh, verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Well, uh, God wants to punish his people, the nation of Israel, by sending upon them a plague. The narrator doesn't need to explain this fact uh, on this occasion because he assumes that we're reading the Bible in context and so that we will know what this means. But just to fill in the blanks, this means basically that the nation of Israel has been seriously misbehaving. There is unchallenged sin. Israel is being unfaithful to the covenant that she has with her Lord. And if a plague comes, they should know exactly what this means. 
even just as soon as they came out of Egypt by the mighty hand of, of the Lord God under Moses as shepherd, God spoke to them, saying, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all of his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And written into the covenant was plague as a punishment for covenant unfaithfulness, for sin, Deuteronomy 28. So the Israelites and David amongst them should have absolutely no doubt whatsoever as to the theological meaning of an epidemic. They must repent and confess and stop sinning. It is essential to point out here and now that, that we are not under that same covenant. That covenant has been updated, superseded in Christ. The meaning of illness is now quite different, uh, but more on that later. The material point for here and now is that it is time to punish Israel. But actually, God can't, because David is in the way. Literally, David is standing in the way. Literally. Not figuratively, literally, although spiritually, not physically. David is the king. David is the head. And as Israel's representative in the heavenly realms, he is righteous. He is in right relationship with God. In a manner of speaking, the righteousness of David makes it impossible for God to punish Israel for her unrighteousness. David is an effective leader. He is righteous. He is in right relationship with God. In order for God to be righteous in punishing an unrighteous Israel, he must find the head also to be unrighteous, as well. And so, sovereignly, God allows David to be tested by Satan. Uh, see First uh, Chronicles 21 verse 1. In order that David, who is a sinner, might see that he is a sinner. David will fail the test. God knew that he would. The next thing that speaks in David's favour is the condition of his heart or mind or conscience as it is rendered in the NIV. In Hebrew, the sentiment is expressed in this way. And the heart of David smote him after this numbering of the people. Well, David is a man after God's own heart. He is passionate about the things that God is passionate about um, not by way of happy coincidence, not that they just happen to be like-minded friends, but rather because David loves God and therein loves what God loves and hates what God hates. His conscience is therefore reliable, reliable and it reliably informs him. That's the second good thing about David. Thirdly, David takes responsibility for his own sin. 
he confesses fully and throws himself completely on the mercy of God. David says, I have sinned greatly and I have done, I have done a very foolish thing. What was so evil in undertaking a census of the fighting men of Israel? Why was that so bad? Well, when we think of censuses, we think of them as essentially beneficial information, uh, um, data-gathering exercises that allow governments to plan and govern effectively. But in the ancient world, a census had a totally different meaning. A census was a means by which you squeezed people for more money. It was an instrument of oppression, an evil thing. It is an evil thing that Joseph and Mary have to travel to Bethlehem because of a census. It is bad news. In the Torah, censuses were allowed. You could do a census, but only as an act of worship. In Exodus 30, uh, we find, Then the Lord said to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over to those already counted is to give half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 gerahs. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. Well, uh, David's sin isn't explicitly told us, but we can surmise that David erred probably in two ways. Um, we, he erred in that what was done, it wasn't done as an act of worship, according to regulations, with a half shekel gathered from each person as an offering to the Lord. And that David undertook the census with some kind of evil motive, such as indeed to oppressively tax, or perhaps in order to boast, or perhaps giving in to the temptation to trust in his own resources to win his battles, rather than to trust in the Lord. In a sense, that happens to be really the foundation of all sin, the temptation of autonomy, the temptation of a life lived independently from God. That's sin. So whatever the details, David sinned. But he confesses. So, fourth, God, David glorifies God and shows enormous depth of understanding of God when he chooses the third option of the three options offered to him. David said to Gad, verse 14, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of human beings. Do not let me fall into human hands. What, what's right is uh, not so much David's conclusion that three days of plague is better than, say, three years of famine, for example, What's what is not so much his conclusion, but his reasoning. The perfection of his reasoning makes the conclusion right, whatever option he'd have chosen. 
his reasoning is you can trust God to be merciful. That's what informs his decision, and he is brilliantly insightful and utterly correct. No matter what we're going through, we can trust God to be merciful. Of all the books in the Bible, um, I find the book of Lamentations one of the most confronting, one of the most difficult to get through. I mean, that title's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? Lamentations, crying. Uh, Any book called crying is going to be hard work. And the book is indeed filled with historic descriptions of almost unimaginable atrocities, terrible things happening to the people of Jerusalem when they went through uh, a siege, um, um, a siege, uh, besieged by the armies of Babylon. But right bang in the middle of the book of Lamentations, uh, we come to this. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I called to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. David knows you can always depend on God to be merciful, even in the expression of his wrath. And David is proved right. God himself relents. God himself can't bring himself to complete the task he himself has assigned himself. Surely his mercy triumphs over his judgment. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Five. David listens to Gad, the prophet, through all of this. This isn't unique, but it is highly unusual. Most kings of Israel, in keeping with the culture around them, reject the idea that they're under the authority of prophets. Prophets are in the court to serve them and their agenda, not the other way around, or so they believed. But David is a leader who listens to God, who listens to God's word who attends to prophecy and treats it with respect, even when, culturally speaking, socially speaking, it comes from a subordinate, a source that is under his authority, humanly speaking. David still listens. Six, David prays for his people. He intercedes. He is an intercessor. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my people. 
praying for the people given to him, the people under his authority, the people under his care. This is fundamental to headship, fundamental to leadership. A generation earlier, the prophet Samuel signed off at his own termination, ending his retirement speech with, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Seven, David offers himself to God as a living sacrifice, the shepherd willing to suffer on behalf of the sheep in order that the wrath of God might be removed from the sheep. Let your hand fall on me and on my family. God will continue to look for shepherds who are willing to suffer for their sheep. And when offered an easy way out from the cost of the sacrifice, David rejects the temptation. Verse 24, But the king replied to Araunah, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. In point of fact, 50 shekels would not have been much money to either David or to Araunah. Although we are told that that was the right, the right value for the property in question. The property and the animals used in sacrifice would not have been a significant cost to David. But David sees clearly that a principle is at stake. It is easy to think sometimes, it is easy to think that the principle at stake is less important if the stake itself is less important, if we're talking about something small. But David sees that it would have been morally wrong not to reimburse Araunah for things rightfully his, and spiritually wrong to offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing at all. It is as important to be faithful with little as it is to be faithful with much. Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. In some ways, it is harder to be a person of integrity when apparently very little is at stake. But David passes this test. And David's ministry is effective. The Lord accepts his offering and accepts his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Fifty shekels, burnt offerings, peace offerings, the blood of sheep and goats, this might sound a bit like bizarre tokenism. And it is tokenism. But the value of a token is in what it stands for. And we'll come to that. Well, as a concluding story to the books of First and Second Samuel, the author has put David in an extraordinary light. Looking back, um, the author has linked David with Abraham, for it was on this same hill that Abraham offered up Isaac in obedience to the will of God, yet received his son back, offering in his stead a ram as a burnt offering and naming the place the Lord will provide. David now stands in that tradition as a 
son of Abraham, one who puts his faith in God. And looking forward, the author now links him to the temple, which will be built here on that site by David's son Solomon on Araunah's threshing floor. And so the ideas of kingship and priesthood uh, have been linked. But of course, the reason for our text is not so much to put David in a good light, but rather that we might understand that these things point us to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. I'll need to take it up again. Uh, the, the blood of sheep and cattle and goats was shed in token in order that the people of Israel and David himself might be forgiven for their sins, but to point us ultimately to Jesus. Jesus Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus passed every test. He never sinned. But he did not die for his own sin, but he died for ours in order that we might be forgiven, and in being forgiven, saved. By his blood, we are justified. The blood of animals rescued David and his people from physical death by plague. The blood of Christ rescues us from a far worse plague, spiritual death, eternal condemnation. We have been healed because he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice cost him everything. Perfect love requiring total cost for a perfect sacrifice. And raised on the third day, Jesus now sits at the right-hand side of God. What is he doing there? Well, one of the things that Jesus is doing there is Jesus is praying for us, for you and for me, interceding for us as our great high priest. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because Jesus is our king, our head and representative, God our Father chooses to see us only through Jesus. And if Jesus is right with him, and he is, then we must also be right with him. Jesus stood in the way of God's wrath taking God's anger upon himself by the plan and will of God revealed in the law and in the prophets in order that he might still stand in the way. Us knowing God intimately and perfectly, but only through Jesus, and God knowing us intimately and perfectly, but only through Jesus. So then, some re-election tips for President Donald Trump and also for us in order to confirm our calling and to make our election sure. Firstly, make sure that you're right with God. 
Make sure that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. Make sure that you are reading your Bible and praying every day. Two, love God. As a decision of your will, love the things that God loves and hate and hate the things that God hates. Renounce any connection with the things that God hates and grasp and receive the things that he loves. In this will be the transformation of your heart, the redemption of your conscience. Three, take responsibility for your mistakes, the ways in which you have let people down through your limitedness, your foolishness, your wickedness, and through your sinfulness. Confess your private sins privately and your public sins publicly, asking the forgiveness, firstly, of God, but also, importantly, secondly, also of the people you have hurt. Four, always trust the mercy of God, found in the blood of Christ. Sin usually has consequences, but it cannot separate us from the love of God as long as we keep on trusting in the cross, putting our faith in Jesus, where mercy triumphs over judgment. His mercies are new every morning, and great is his faithfulness. 5. Listen to godly wisdom, even when it comes from subordinates, social inferiors, people beneath you, even when it comes indeed from your critics. Correction is not necessarily rejection. So don't attack those who spot your mistakes or call you to account or simply disagree with your views. Better the wounds of a friend than an enemy who multiplies kisses. 6. Pray every day for those under your care, beginning with your wife, then your children, then your staff, and then the people of your country. Intercede for them, giving thanks to God for them. 7. The call to lead is a call to suffer. Consider the cost and take up your cross. If uh, Donald can do this, if we can do this, then we'll start acting like grown-ups. We'll start copying David. We'll start following Jesus. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.